In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, today as we prepare to conclude this study of the man Samson, I pray, Lord, that we will have grace to see what you have done through this man. I pray, Lord, that we would have grace not to follow his example. Lord, I pray that we would have grace to see the beauty of Jesus Christ, who is our true deliverer. Lord, please be with me as there is much content in this chapter. I pray that I would stay focused and that I would deliver the message in a way that would be understandable and and interesting to the people. And Lord, I pray that each heart would be inclined toward listening, that our minds would be quickened and that we would be able to grasp the truth, hold on to it, remember it, and Lord, use it for your glory. And so Lord, as we hear the word today, make us doers of your word. Uh, We left to ourselves would not do your word, so it is, Lord, incumbent upon your spirit to move in us so that we will be doers of your word. Help us, Lord, today to see pride and to reject it. Lord, help us to see humility and embrace it. In the name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen. Judges chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So what we're doing here on Sunday mornings is we are making our way through the book of the Old Testament, the Old Testament book of Judges. Uh, it is a book which is repetitive and rough. It is rhetorical and redemptive. And today we come to the most famous story in the book, the story of Samson and Delilah, a very famous couple. Bruce Springsteen wrote, Romeo and Juliet, Samson and Delilah, baby you can bet, a love they couldn't deny. Well, Mr. Springsteen obviously read Shakespeare and he knew about Romeo and Juliet, but did he ever even read the Bible? Does he know that the story of Samson and Delilah is not a love story? Now, this is not a great romance. Uh, please know that as I go through this story today, it's going to be somewhat difficult for me as a preacher. In fact, generally speaking, it is tougher for a preacher to preach well-known stories than it is to preach obscure ones. Assuming that you are a Bible reader, what am I going to be able to tell you today about Samson and Delilah that you don't already know? So what I'm going to do as we go through Judges chapter 16 today is I'm going to use the same format that I used last week. We are going to go through the chapter verse by verse, just sort of a running commentary of the entire chapter. And if you haven't already turned to Judges 16, please do so now. We're going to go through Judges 16, verses 1 through 31, verse by verse. And then after we've read the text, and I think you understand the text, I'm going to try to explain the text using a two-point outline. Point number one is pride, and point number two is humility. By way of review, Samson was a judge in Israel. He was from the tribe of Dan. Before he was even born, his parents were told that he would begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines, and he did begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. His motives were selfish, and his means were very unconventional. Uh, He, like the rest of Israel, did what was right in his own eyes. Uh, But he was a man of superhuman strength, 
but he was also a man of superhuman passion and superhuman foolishness and superhuman vengeance and superhuman violence. But God used him to bring a lot of sorrow to the Philistines who were the oppressors of Israel at the time. They were the enemies of Israel at the time. And so as we move through chapter 16, we're going to see still other examples of his unbridled strength and his unbridled passion. Let's go through the text, beginning with verse 1. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. They surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. So what do we have here? Uh, well, we have Samson going to visit a prostitute. Why did he do that? It is Samson being Samson. It is very consistent with who he was. Why he went to visit a prostitute is for obvious reasons. The greater question is not what was he doing seeing a prostitute, but what was he doing in Gaza at all? Because that was a far distance into the territory of the Philistines. In fact, that was as far as he could possibly get away from home. It was as far as you could go to the west all the way over up and against the coast. There was no reason for him to be there at all. And that city, Gaza, is going to play a big role in Samson's destiny. He's going to rue the day that he ever stepped foot in that city. As far as this particular feat of strength, he carries the gates and the doors of the city 37 miles all the way back into Israel, just outside of Hebron. And in so doing, he leaves the city of Gaza defenseless. Uh, it is humiliating for the Philistines who were waiting up for him and they weren't able to stop him and uh, why they were not awakened or stirred when he was carrying the gates of the city away, we don't know. Maybe they were awake at the time, but they just couldn't stop him. But now what Israel possesses is an enormous trophy. The city of Gaza no longer has gates. They no longer have doors. And that event, him doing that to them, precipitates what happens next in the story of Samson and Delilah, which we pick up in verse 4. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. Hey there, Delilah, what's it like in Sorek City? And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him, and we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Now let's put this into perspective. There are five lords of the Philistines. They're each going to give 1,100 pieces of silver. One commentator suggested that this is a modern-day equivalent of about 15 million U.S. dollars. Verse 6, so Delilah, motivated by money, said to Moses, I'm sorry, to Moses, to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could seduce you. Now, why in the world 
after hearing this question, would you not run away from this woman immediately? The amazing thing about her is that she in no way at any point is ever deceptive or duplicitous. She says, I want to know how you can be bound so that you can be subdued. Love is blind. Verse 7, Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she, S-H-E, she bound him with them. Now, she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. Side note, um, whenever my father would wake me in the morning, he would turn on the lights and he would say, get up, Eddie, the Philistines are upon you. That's how I was woken up every morning. I, you're laughing at it. I thought it was normal. This is how I woke up my entire life. The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as the thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire, so the secret of his strength was not known. Several things to um, take into account here. First of all, um, Delilah being motivated by greed is going to do anything, and so she asks, how can you be subdued? If you're Samson, are you not going to like question this and say, why are you even asking me? Uh, if, if a woman who supposedly loves you wants to know how you can be weakened and defeated, and then based upon what you have told her, she does exactly that, and then moments later, Philistines come charging into the room, would you not start to get the idea that this woman is not on your side? Once again, love is blind. It is blind. Uh, look how she does it again in verses 10 through 12. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes, remember back in chapter 15, that is how he was bound by the um, tribe of Judah. If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Uh, Implied in this is that Samson knows that he is not like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber. But he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Another thing that is just really curious. If it has happened to you once, you have revealed a secret, even though you're not telling the truth, and all of a sudden these guys appear from within the house, would you not... After giving away another lie, go look in the closet and make sure that there's no one in the closet. Again, love is blind. Number three, starting in verse 13. Then Delilah said to Samson, until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be be bound. And he said to her, if you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with a pin... Then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web. And she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin and the loom 
and the web. So this is the third time that has happened, but with this one, I want you to notice something very unusual has happened. He is not telling her the truth, but he's starting to move in the direction of the truth. The first two things have nothing to do with his strength, but now he mentions his hair. You see, the longer we flirt with sin, the more confident we become to play around with it and the less we fear it. Think about when you're walking a trail out in a a, a beautiful wooded area and you come up to the crest of the hill and all of a sudden you see in front of you a great precipice or a valley or a gorge. Well, when you first see it, what is your response? You walk up and you start to slow down. And then even as you're looking out over it, your feet might be moving backwards. Why? Because you're cautious. You know that one false step over the edge and, and, and you will die. But what happens when we are there for a few minutes and we get used to the altitude, we get used to the view, before you know it, our toes are hanging over the edge and we are looking fearlessly. The same thing is true with sin. There's a caution at first, but the closer we get to it, Without getting burned, the closer we get to it, and we continue to get closer to it, and the more fearless we become. Well, this is Samson at this point. He is mentioning his hair. There's no good reason for him to give her any answer at all, but you sure don't want to start to talk about your hair. Picking up the reading now in verse 15. And she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. In other words, he, he was worn down by her. Verse 17, and he told her all his heart. Uh, Let me just pause right there. This is the fourth time. I think if he had lied to her this time, she would have gone for a fifth and a sixth and a seventh. The reason I say that is if if you've got $15 million on the line, you're going to keep trying. She is vexed by the fact that he's not telling her the truth, but she's not going to stop at all. This is going to be relentless pursuit, and she finally hits pay dirt on number four, verse 17. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. Once again, I know I am not like any other man, but if you take my hair away, I will be. Verse 18, when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, come up again for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep at her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, Look at it. I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. 
but he did not know that the Lord had left him. He did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza, that place he never should have gone in the first place, as payback, as retribution, as revenge. He gets taken down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. What do they do next? And he ground at the mill in the prison like an animal. So, what do we have here? We have this guy telling the truth, and as a result, losing his freedom and losing his eyesight and being treated like an animal. And we have to ask the question, why? Why did he tell her? And I have a really good answer. The answer is, we don't know, and neither did Samson. You say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Oh, dear friends, it makes perfect sense. Think about the sins which you commit. After you commit them, and you begin to feel the sting of them, and you start to have a conversation with yourself and say, why did I do that? The answer that you will come up with is, I don't know. I, 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 I can't tell you. Because sin makes you stupid. Think about the knuckle-headed teenager who does something knuckle-headed and gets, gets caught. And mom and dad sit down and ask the question, why did you do that? What were you thinking? Think about myself. I don't know. I, I just, it was there, so I did it. If you had a time machine and you went back, you would redo it. But at the time when it is actually happening, you don't know why you're doing what you're doing. Th this guy is just giving the answer, but he's not really thinking about what the ramifications are going to be. True story. I was in my first year of ministry. I was in, I would say, my first couple months of ministry. It was a brand new church building that I was working at in suburban Atlanta, and I went out one Friday afternoon in September to put some items in the dumpster. Everybody else in the staff had left, and the dumpster was just about full. I am ashamed and embarrassed to tell you this. Couldn't fit everything into the dumpster, so I thought to myself, here's what I'll do. I'll light a little fire here and, and just burn it down, and then there will be more space for... Uh, yes. I'll just burn it down a little bit, and then there'll be more space to put my stuff in. Well, after the fire department left, <laughs> the, the, the pastor of the church who had been driving by saw the smoke billowing from the church. It wasn't the church that was on fire. It was just the dumpster. He came up to me, and he asked this question. Why did you set the dumpster on fire? I don't know. This is pretty much Samson at this point. There's no good reason. So they pay him back for what he has done to them by carrying the city gates away. They gouge out his eyes and he's grinding like an animal. Now, when we get to verse 22, I want you to read it as though you've never read it before. I know that you've read it before. I know that you know what is going to happen, but pretend you're reading it for the first time and it says... 
But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. So there is a glimmer of hope here, but we're not sure what's going to happen next. Verses 23 and 24. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. Uh, Dagon is either a fish god or he is a grain god. We're not exactly sure, but he was an idol that they worshipped. Notice their humility in that they are not taking credit themselves for defeating Samson, but they're giving the glory to their god, small g, G-O-D, Dagon. He is the one who's delivered him to us. Verse 24, And when the people saw him, they praised their god, again, humility on their part, not taking credit, for they said, Our god has given our enemy into our hand the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. So there's this celebration going on. There is this rejoicing going on over the fact that Samson is now in custody, picking up the reading in verse 25. And when their hearts were merry, probably it had quite a bit to drink at this time, they said, call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. So get the picture. Samson's in jail. They summon him. He comes into a room. He can't see anybody. He's probably never been in this room before. He doesn't know where he is, and he is entertaining them. How is he entertaining them? We're not sure. Maybe just the sight of him being there with his eyes gouged out and him looking like 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 an animal or a beast. Maybe that was funny to them. Maybe they would put things in front of him to trip him. We're not exactly sure how he entertained them, but it was entertaining for them. And they mocked him, and here's how they mocked him. They stood him between two pillars. You say, well, what is the significance of that? The reason he would stand there is because that's where a ruler or a king or a judge or someone who was in authority would go in order to speak, in order to rule, in order to render a verdict. And so, sort of as Christ was mocked by them putting a crown of thorns on him and a purple robe and a, and a scepter in his hand and then bowed before him and said, Hail, King of the Jews, they stick in between these two pillars so as to mock him. They are getting a good laugh at his expense. Verse 26. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, he needed someone to hold him by the hand because he couldn't see to get himself from place to place. Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests that I may lean against them. Samson is a trickster. He has always been a practical joker. He is not saying to the young man, would you please give me two load-bearing pillars so that I can press on them so that I might kill you and everyone else. What he is probably saying is something like this. I am so tired. I cannot even stand. Could you just get me to the pillars so that I could prop myself up and get a rest? I think that's what he's saying. He has something in mind. The young man certainly doesn't know what he is doing. He unwittingly leads Samson to the two load-bearing pillars which hold the house up. Verse 27. Now, the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof, there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. So I want you to understand here, it's really important, not only, okay, are 3,000 people going to die, 
but these are important people. All of their presidents, all of their rulers, all of the lords of the Philistines. Sort of like flying a plane into the Twin Towers. Not only are you going to kill people and a lot of people, but you're going to kill a lot of influential people. In the same way here, in this one house, there are not only a lot of people, but there are a lot of influential and powerful people. All of their government officials are there. Verse 28. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. What is the motive that Samson has here? Well, in keeping with who Samson is, his motive is vengeance. There's nothing here about the glory of God. Um, there's nothing here other than vengeance, which is the kind of guy that this is Samson being Samson. Um, but it is a humble prayer. So here's the question. Why, if he is praying for vengeance, does God answer the prayer? A commentator by the name of Barry Webb, I lean upon him heavenly for my study, in Judges has put it this way, and I think he gets it right when he says, all Samson wants is vengeance for the personal wrongs he has suffered. God wants something more. But at least there is a confluence of the two desires. What Samson wants for his own reasons, God wants for other greater reasons. So Samson's prayer is answered, end quote, and that's profound. Do you understand what he's saying? We pray for something, the thing that we pray for we want. We want it because we want it. God answers it, but he doesn't always answer it and give it to us because we want it, but God wants us to have it because he's going to use it for something entirely different. In other words, he has a deeper and a better purpose in answering our prayers, but nonetheless, he answers our prayers. Brilliant, beautiful. That That, that is so well put by Mr. Webb. Verses 29 and 30. Verses 29 and 30. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it, so the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. All right, he is where he needs to be. God gives him this strength. God answers his prayer. He pushes, the house falls, and everyone in the building, including himself, is killed. Verse 31, Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and buried and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtheol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. So that's the, that's the story. That's, that's the content. Uh, we know from Hebrews chapter 11 that after he was dead and buried, he went to heaven. He, he, he died in faith. So we know that Samson is our brother in Christ. We know that he was a Believer. He was a weak believer. He was a wacky believer, but he was a believer nonetheless. We know that from Hebrews chapter 11. From this chapter, what I want us to consider are two topics, and this is an explanation of the text. 
Topic number one is pride, and topic number two is humility. And for our purposes today, the sermon is going to be delivered to those of you who are saved, those of you who are born again. And the reason I'm going to do this is because Samson was a believer. Samson was our brother in Christ. If you don't know what that means, uh, please know that you are going to spend eternity somewhere. You have a soul that will never die. Uh, you are in bad shape because you have sinned against God. You have broken his laws, and the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, and in part what that means is eternal death or damnation in hell. Know also that God is loving and that he is merciful, and he has done something about our sins, and that is he has sent his only son, Jesus, from heaven to earth to live in our place, a life that we couldn't live, and then give that record to us, and... He died in our place. He died for sinners. He died so that we might be forgiven and that our sins might be washed away. Because the wages of sin is death, the price for sin is death, Jesus died in our place. Jesus rose again on the third day. He is alive today. And if we call upon him, we will be saved. I am speaking today to saved people. But if you are not a saved person, call upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. But for our purposes today, I want to consider pride in the life of a believer. Pride. Pride is not a Christian virtue. In fact, it is the worst and the deadliest of all sins. Uh, it is self-love put to action. It is thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. And it causes God to oppose us. You, 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 you don't want enemies, but you surely do not want God as an enemy. Well, the scripture says that when we are prideful, God becomes our enemy. James chapter 4, verse 6, God opposes the proud. In the book of Obadiah, it's a short book in the Old Testament. It's only one chapter in length. God is speaking to Edom. Edom is very arrogant. They are very prideful. They didn't help Judah when Judah was being attacked by the Babylonians. And God says this to Edom in verses 3 and 4. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Verse 4. Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. The Lord hates pride, and he will address it sternly in our lives. It's not difficult to see pride and arrogance in Samson's life. However, it is really hard sometimes to see pride and arrogance in our own lives there are few people that can actually detect pride in their own hearts. So maybe by studying Samson, we can detect pride in our own lives. In case you missed it, I'm going to give you six evidences of pride in Samson's life just from chapter 16. Now, there are many other examples which could be drawn from chapters 14 and 15, but for now, for today, chapter 16 only. What are the six evidences of pride in his life? Number one, Sexual immorality. Chapter 16, verse 1, Samson goes to a prostitute in Gaza. And you say, well, how is sexual immorality an expression of pride? Well, it's because it is you placing yourself in the position of lawgiver and rule maker with respect to yourself. 
You see, God has made it very, very clear that sexual activity is to be confined to one man and one woman in a covenant and bond of marriage with each other and with each other only for life. The Lord has said in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And so anything that is outside of marriage with respect to sexuality is sin. And sin is the breaking of God's law. And so when you say, well, I'm going to sleep with whoever I want to sleep with, or maybe I won't actually go so far as to sleeping with them, but we are going to fool around, or I am going to have this same gender relationship with someone who is not my spouse, that primarily is an act of pride because it is saying to God, you can't tell me what to do. I am the boss. The same thing can be said of pornography or viewing sexually explicit images. I am the boss of me. Do not tell me what to do with my computer or my phone. I belong to me and you can't tell me what to do. I own me. The Bible says, as a Christian, no, you don't own you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul, in speaking to the church in Corinth about sexual sin, says this, chapter 6, verse 18 through 20, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You do not belong to you. You are not the boss. You are not the rule maker. You are not your own. What does it go on to say? For you were bought with a price. Stop right there. The reason you as a believer are not your own is because Jesus Christ bought you with his precious blood. The gospel is that which motivates sexual purity. The gospel is of first importance. When he hung up on that cross, he purchased you. He bought you. You don't belong to you. Your body doesn't belong to you. You belong to Jesus Christ, who bought you with a price, which was his life, which is blood. You were bought with a price, and so what are we to do? So glorify God in your body by abstaining from sexual immorality. You see, we can talk about uh, sexual sin from several different vantage points. We can talk about disease, or we can talk about unwanted pregnancy, or breaking up of marriages, or shame and guilt. We can even start to discuss it in terms of eternal damnation, because it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, a little bit earlier in the chapter that we just read, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, that fornicators and adulterers and homosexuals will not be in heaven. You can discuss it in terms of eternal damnation. But I think at its very heart, when we start to analyze the root or the basis or the foundation of sexual sin, it is plain and simple pride. It's not about attraction or hormones or lust. It's about pride. It is saying, I am the boss of me. I will politely sit in church and listen to your sermons when you talk about the necessity of sexual purity. But when push comes to shove, I am in charge. I will leave this place today, perhaps even intellectually agreeing with you that you are right. However, later today, I will pull out my phone or my computer or I will go back to the relationship that I am in with someone that 
is not my spouse, and I will do whatever I want to do. Samson was filled with pride. He didn't sneak into a brothel in Gaza. He went in freely and openly, and he was seen, and he didn't care. And the reason why he didn't care is because he was filled with pride. Sexual immorality is a form of pride, and pride makes you sad. Here's the second manifestation of pride in the life of Samson in chapter 16, and that is that he made provision for the flesh. What does that mean? It means that you leave something laying around which can be used to enable you to sin more easily. We see him making provision for the flesh in these words. Listen closely. Samson, 16.1, Samson went to Gaza. Why? It's a long way from home. It's enemy territory. There is absolutely no reason whatsoever to be there. Then in chapter 16, verse 4, the same is true. He met Delilah in the valley of Sorek. Why? It is a long way from home. It is in enemy territory. There is no reason for him to be there. You see, Samson plays fast and loose with where he goes and who he associates with. And the reason that he does this is because of his pride. Because in his mind, he cannot be touched and he cannot be harmed. He understands that he is not like every other man. And maybe you would feel the same way if you had just killed a thousand Philistine soldiers by yourself. Here's what pride says. There are rules and then there are rules for me. And the rules for me are different than the rules for everyone else. The rules for me concerning safety and caution, they do not apply. But he, but but Romans 13, 14 says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Stop right there. It's not just a matter of mortifying the flesh, but first and primarily put on the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is of first importance. It is, is first to be joined to Jesus Christ, to understand that he died for your sins, to embrace him, to follow him, to, 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 to grab hold of Jesus Christ as tightly as you can. Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel, And in addition to that, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Samson didn't see himself in any danger. You can get as close to sin as you want to, and you're not going to fall into it. The reason you're not going to fall into it is because you are different. Making provision for the flesh. Here's an illustration that I used to use in this church, and at the time, It actually was something which was real in my life. I will use it now because it is still a very good illustration, but it is no longer applicable. What used to happen in my life is every year on January 1st, I would start to have a diet. And with that diet, what I would do is I would go through the house and all of the goodies that you gave me as your pastor over the holidays, I would take them all and I would throw them in the trash. I would go in the freezer. I would take out the ice cream. I would throw it away. Why? Because I did not want to make provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. It was not in the house. Then I couldn't eat it. Serious about losing weight. Again, it, it is a hypothetical thing because as you can see, I don't care. I no longer care. I have quit. I have given up. It's not a real illustration. My tie doesn't even reach my belt. I don't care. But in principle, you understand. If I did care, then what you would do is you would remove that which would cause you to sin from your presence. 
You see, pride will cause you to think that you can allow yourself to have ungodly friends and not be dragged down by them. Pride will cause you to think that you can have full, unmonitored access to your phone or computer and not fall into sin. Pride. Rules for others do not apply to me. Samson made provision for the flesh, and eventually it killed him. The flesh took full advantage of him. Making provision for the flesh is prideful. Pride will make you sad. Number three. His pride was manifest in his taunting, in his taunting. Taunting, a a definition. That which is intended to provoke someone in an insulting or contemptuous manner. Taunting. That which is intended to provoke someone in an insulting or contemptuous manner. When you pick up the city gates and you carry them away 37 miles, you are taunting them. He could have just left the city and that would have been the end of it. Taunting in football carries a 15-yard penalty. And taunting in life carries the displeasure of God. It is prideful. And Samson was full of himself, and over and over again, he goes over the top and unnecessarily, excessively displays his strength in an insulting way toward the Philistines. When I used to coach Little League... I would always tell my team at the end of the game, you do not celebrate at the end of the game, but you, when the game is over, you line up and you shake hands with the players on the other team and you tell them good game. Could you imagine having Samson on your little league team? Taunting is prideful. He could have just escaped and gone his way, but no, he had to carry it over the top. Taunting is prideful and pride makes you sad. Number four, and closely related to the first point, I'm sorry, the second point that I made concerning provision for the flesh, Samson's uh, pride was manifest in that he was unequally yoked to an unbeliever, Delilah, a Gentile, a Philistine. Notice his motive for being with her is not primarily lust. Uh, That's what it was when he went to visit the prostitute. But now his motive is love. Verse 4, he loved her. He is emotionally involved. If you are saved, and Samson was, and I'm assuming that you are, that is the people to whom I am speaking right now. I understand that there are people right now to whom I am speaking who are not saved, but I think the majority of you are, and you are my audience, and you are not married. You are single. Listen closely to what I am about to say. Never under any circumstances should you ever for any reason ever date or be involved romantically with someone who is not a child of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Why would a Christian get involved with a non-Christian? Disobedience and pride, self-love. I I understand what God says here. However, this does not apply to me. I understand that this is not going to make me happy, so other Christians have told me. Nevertheless, what you have to understand about me is that I am different. When I was 18 years old, I was a Christian. I was involved in campus ministry. I was involved in evangelism. I was involved in church. I was involved in Bible studies. I was following the Lord, and I started to date a Roman Catholic girl. Nice girl, pretty girl, not as pretty as Anna, but pretty girl. 
and, and my attitude toward her was this. I know that the Bible says that you are not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, but here's what's going to happen. I am going to influence her. I'm going to win her to the Lord. I'm going to have a positive influence on her, and she is not going to drag me down. She did, and I was unsuccessful. I learned the hard way, and thankfully I didn't marry this girl. I learned the hard way that you are not to give your heart to an unbeliever, for to do so is prideful, and pride makes you sad. Number five, he manifests his pride by treating that which was sacred with no respect. In other words, he had no respect or reverence for the holy. What about Samson was holy? It was the Nazarite vow, which from his birth, Jesus had given to his mother and to his mother and his father, saying that a razor shall not come upon his head. All the days of his life, he is set apart by God for the purpose of delivering Israel or starting the delivery of, of deliverance of Israel and the sign of this sacred vow is his hair. It was be, to be used to defeat the Philistines and to deliver God's people. It was sacred. It was sacred. But what did he do? He used it in a cat and mouse game with Delilah. It, it, it was special. It was a unique gift from God. He did not view it that way at all. He used it as a toy to flirt with this woman who wanted to kill him. And he knew that she was up to no good. And the reason that he knew that is because she told him. Still, Samson likes to play fast and loose. He likes to get close to the edge with God's precious gift. He played with fire and he got burned. Friends, listen, when it comes to laughter and frivolity and a good practical joke, I, 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 there's nobody who enjoys it more than me. However, when it comes to obedience and sanctification and service to King Jesus, we need to be dead serious. This is not a game. This is not a toy. This is not a joke. And the arrogant man treats the sacred as trivial. That's pride. and Pride will make you sad. And most importantly, number six. In fact, if you get number six, it, it really will explain the first five. You can just get number six and you will be okay. If you've been daydreaming up to this point and you get number six, it, it will well have been worth your while to be here. This is the key to the downfall of Samson. Pride is seen in the life of Samson in that he plainly believed that he did not need God. In other words, he was self-reliant. So I've been in the ministry since 1984. I have done more funerals than I can count. About a decade ago, we brought a young man on staff here. His name is Matthew Shores, and our reason for bringing him on staff here was to send him out to plant or revitalize a church. But before we sent him out, we wanted to train him. So the way that we would train him is that he would follow me everywhere that I would go whether it was evangelism or whether it was to do a wedding or whether it was to do a funeral or whether it was to do a hospital visit or whatever. He was to follow me. Supposedly, I know what I'm doing. I'm training him. The way I'm training him is he watches what I do. Someone died. 
not someone who had any association with this church. I do many funerals of people that have no association with this church. And uh, so I said, Matthew, I'm going to pick you up. It was a rainy Friday night. I'm going to pick you up. We're going to go to the funeral home and uh, just watch me. Watch, watch what I do. Here's how I do. Here's how I do funerals. Uh, I had done a million funerals before. And I have a way that I do them. Uh, I will walk in. I will talk to the family about the deceased. I will get a few details, and then I will mesh that into a gospel presentation. I will talk about the deceased. I will talk about salvation. And it, 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 it's a pretty standard formula. I have done it many, many times. And in my estimation, I know what I'm doing. Matthew is with me. I did not go prepared at all. I didn't know that when I walked into that funeral home that there was great hostility between family members and that there was thick tension in the room. I didn't know that a certain segment of the people there did not want me to be doing this funeral. I didn't know that there would be people who were hostile to me. I didn't know that as I began to speak and I was looking out into the faces of the people it was not only disinterest, but it was disdain. And as a result, when I stood up there to speak about the deceased and to speak about the gospel, my mind went blank. It would be okay if I left details out, but I got details wrong. And I completely butchered this man's funeral, and I completely butchered the gospel. And I could not wait to get out of that funeral home that night. As we got into the car and we were driving out of the parking lot of the funeral home, I said to Matthew, well, I have just given you something which is more valuable than anything that you ever received in your seminary training, and that is this. Don't you ever, under any circumstances, ever rely upon yourself and rely upon your experience, but you always prepare and you always prepare fully for when you do not prepare fully, you will make a fool of yourself and you will dishonor the family. You will dishonor the Lord. Matthew said to me, he said, yeah, you were really horrible tonight. <laughs> and I was. But hopefully I learned from that that you do not rely upon yourself. Why in the world would you tell someone like Delilah the secret of your strength? Would you expect her to cut your hair? The answer is yes, you would expect that. I mean, if she tied you up with the undried bowstrings, if she tied you up with the new ropes, if she put your hair in a loom and, and, and braided it together and put the pin in there, would you then not expect that she would, would, would cut your hair? He fully knew that she was going to cut his hair. She had already told him that she was out to get him. Why did he then tell her the secret? He did it because of pride. I'm Samson, and it doesn't matter whether I tell her the truth. I don't need anybody but Samson. I don't need my hair. I don't need my vow. I don't even need God. I'm Samson. And after his hair was cut and he was awakened, and believe me, he knew that his hair had been cut off, 
Remember that experiment that I did earlier this year trying to grow my hair long for several months? The day I got my hair cut, I realized, the moment I got it, I realized that something wasn't there. Now imagine going your entire life never having a haircut and all of a sudden you are shaved and it is all gone. The second he woke up, he knew that his hair was gone. He didn't care. It didn't matter to him. Verse 20, he says, I will go out as at other times. I will go into that funeral home as at other times, and I will do a fine job. Why? Because I'm Ed Moore, and I've done a bunch of funerals. I'm Samson, and I have defeated these people now three times. I will go out as at other times and will shake myself free. I'm Samson. I don't need God. You say, that's horrible. Yes, it is. You know what else is horrible? It's when you, as a child of God, don't read your Bible faithfully every day. When you say, I know this stuff already. I've read it before. What am I going to tell you about Samson that you haven't read already? I, 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 I know the Bible is the word of God, but I don't need it. I don't need to pray, or if I do pray, I don't need to pray fervently. I, I, I just, I, I will be fine without it because I am me. I don't need to draw near to Christ and I don't need to feel his presence with me. I don't need to position myself in the heart of the church. I can stay on the periphery. I don't need the Lord's Supper at church night. I, I, I don't need to be with the people of God. I, I, I mean, I suppose that is a good thing, but I don't need it. I don't need to even be a member of a church. I am fine with me. I will be just fine without him. See, the prideful person is distant from God, and they think that they are fine, but they are not. Verse 20, Samson did not know that the Lord had left him. You have a picture of yourself in your own mind. Like, do, like, do you do you kind of know what you what you look like? I mean, not with a mirror or or with a phone, but but just sort of you know what you look like. Here, here's my problem. I have a lot of problems, but here's one of them. I think that I look like I used to look. 20 years ago. And when I walk past a mirror, surprisingly, I look and not only do I say, ouch, but I say to myself, when did this happen? How and when did I become an old man? The Lord, through Hosea the prophet, is chastising the nation of Israel And he says in chapter 7, verse 9, Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. In other words, when a hair is growing in my head, it doesn't feel any different than the brown hairs that used to grow in my head. Brown hairs and gray hairs feel the same. The gray hairs come, and you don't know that they're coming. You're getting old. You don't know you're getting old. You're getting weak. You don't know you're getting weak. You think that you are just as strong as you have always been, Israel. Well, you're not. 
Samson, you think that you are just as strong as you have always been. You are not. Prideful people are weak, but they do not know that they are weak. The presence of God was not of any value to him. He was self-reliant. He was prideful, and pride makes you sad. Do you see how pride is embodied in the person of Samson through his sexual immorality, making provision for the flesh, taunting his enemies, being yoked to an unbeliever, trivializing his precious gift and viewing himself as an untouchable, self-reliant champion. And do you see that these things lead to his sadness, blindness, slavery, and shame? Do you see his pride? Do you see the ugliness of his pride? Which brings us to point number two, which I will go through very quickly and that is the subject of humility. At this point, Samson is very aware of his pride, and he's very aware of his need for humility. Can you in your mind's eye picture him, his head shaved, his eyes gouged out, he's grinding at the mill like an animal? Can you picture him a little bit later with some of his hair grown in, but still with his eyes gouged out, and standing in front of all of the people celebrating the glories of Dagon, and he is entertaining them. And his ears are hearing the praises of Dagon. If there's anybody who understood that Dagon didn't have any power at all, it was Samson, but yet he has to stand there and listen to them sing the praises of Dagon. Do you see his weakness? He can't even find the pillars. He needs a boy, to help him get to that position. He is fully humbled. The reason we know he's humbled is because we hear him pray. Listen to his prayer again in verse 28. O Lord God, please remember me, and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. It is a very simple formula. And that is that humble people pray and that proud people don't. Humble people pray and proud people don't. Humble people know their need for God. Arrogant people don't see it. And the irony of the Samson story is that, here's the irony, is when he had his eyes, he was blind. But when he had his eyes poked out, he had 20-20 spiritual vision. He is no longer in love with himself. And he's now fully willing to sacrifice himself in order to defeat God's enemies. Verse 30, let me die with the Philistines. He has emptied himself. And in that condition, he accomplishes more at his death than he did in his life. God opposes the proud, but the rest of the verse says, God gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Humility leads to happiness. Pride leads to sadness. At this point, Samson is a man who is humble. Now, how will you respond to this study in pride and humility? I know that you don't want to be sad. I know that you do want joy. I want to tell you that arrogance will lead to sorrow and hopefully you can learn from Samson's spiritual failures. On that thought, before we close, I want to say that 
Although Samson is an example for us, both of good and bad, mostly bad, the truth of what humility looks like is not primarily seen in Samson, but the truth of what humility looks like is seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, Samson is a flawed deliverer who shows us a need for a perfect, humble king. I want to point you today to Jesus Christ, the perfect, humble king. He wasn't defiled by sin. He was pure. He was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. He didn't put God to the test by walking in the paths of unrighteousness, but he was close and obedient to his father. He didn't flaunt his miracle-working power by putting it forward for the people as a show or entertainment. Satan wanted Jesus to show off his power by telling him to jump from the temple. It wasn't a game to Jesus, but it was to Samson. Jesus was one who trusted in God and stayed close to God. In other words, Jesus was humble, and he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. So there are a lot of ways in which Samson and Jesus are dissimilar, but I want to send you home today with some encouragement, and I want to show you how Samson and Jesus are similar and how Samson is a type of Christ. First of all, both of them were mocked, and they were taunted, and they were humiliated. Samson couldn't find the pillars without help, Jesus couldn't carry his cross without help. They were both spent. Samson laid down his life. So did Jesus. Samson died to deliver God's people. So did Jesus. Samson died with sinners. So did Jesus. He was numbered with transgressors. Samson died by stretching out his arms. So did Jesus on the cross. And Samson accomplished more in his death than anything else that he did, and so did Jesus. You see, Samson is a type of Christ, but there's one major difference, and that is this. Samson's family came, they dug through the rubble, they found his body, they carried it back to his hometown, and they buried him there with his father. And I want to tell you today, the body of Samson is still there. However, when Jesus was buried in a borrowed tomb, he didn't stay there. He is alive, and he is alive today for you to humble yourself before him and to pray to him and to call out to him to have mercy upon you, to forgive you of your pride and arrogance. He is alive today to help you to become humble. He is alive today to save you. You say, Pastor Ed, my my pride has really ruined my life. Like, I am messed up top to bottom. I am too far gone. Maybe you're pretty far gone, but you're not too far gone. There is a God of grace and peace. There is a God of mercy. There is a God who specializes in taking people who are pretty far gone, and he allows their hair to grow. And if you today have hope in Jesus, then you have hope of life. You might be pretty far gone, but you're not completely gone. And so, pride and humility. Pride unto sadness, humility unto joy. Humble yourself 
call upon Jesus. If you have life, you have hope. Father in heaven, thank you for this study of this very strange and unusual man. Lord, sadly today we see ourselves in him in many ways, and Lord, we don't want to be like him. We want to be like your son. Lord, we need your son. Thank you, Lord, that we are acceptable to you because your son has paid for our sins. Lord, please uh, cause us to take pride very seriously and to do everything we can by your spirit to root it out of our lives. Help us to lean upon you and read your word and pray and be in close communion with your people and draw close to you. Help us, Lord, to hate pride and to run far from it and to embrace all that is Jesus Christ, for it is in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. At this time, I invite you to stand and let's respond in song as we contemplate.